When it comes to television, it's a writer's world and we're just living in it. They develop stories, write scripts, make edits and revisions and help determine what an episode looks like on screen. It's why an episode can be, at once, funny, wise and sad. I'm your host, Yolanti Falhinmi, a journalist who advocates for innovation and storytelling and this is Black Prose, the podcast where black writers talk amongst themselves. Nathan Bryan is the unofficial official mayor of Shepherd's Bush. The actor, screenwriter, playwright and Sunday Times bestselling author is never not working. After securing a three-picture book deal with Penguin Random House, he released award-winning Look Up in 2019 with illustrator Dapo Adeola. Clean Up in 2020 and the last of its series, Speak Up, will be out this year. Wow, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I think the best place for the first thing we speak about is Rylane. Yes. What is Rylane and why are you so excited about it? Rylane is a big, joyous, vibrant rom-com where two people who have just come out of really bad breakups meet each other on a day and they go on a stroll through South London and they fall in love. It is like a love letter to London. It's a love letter to joy. And it's a love letter to just... Did I say South London? It's not South yeah. London. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. But what inspired the idea? Because you've written it with your friend Tom. Miller. Tom, yeah. So what inspired us both was that uh, we love rom-coms. So we were like, well, why don't rom-coms show our sort of life? Like, why don't they show the bougie little cocktail bars I'm in? Why don't they show me in an art gallery? Because that's where I'd be. I'd be in these nice places. So um, <laughs> it was that. I wanted to show like the middle in London. I think in London there's like, you know, you, you only ever see the extremes. You see like the really fancy hotels or you see violence here, there. And, you know, both stories should be told. And I, I, I wanted to show the middle, which is the long walk round, stopping off at getting a burrito here, getting a chicken shop here. And, and Tom and I, that was super important for us. And what's the co-writing process like? It's, is that hard? No, weirdly, Tom and I have written loads of stuff together. This was our first big project we've written together. So really, we'd sit in a coffee shop, we'd drink copious amounts of coffee, chat loads of shit, get a bit of work done, panic that we haven't done enough, chat some more shit, get some more coffee, and just keep letting this script roll. And also on top of that, like I go away and write 15 pages, he'll go away and write 15 pages. Okay. We'll swap those pages over. So it's a real like back and forth. I think we're both very easygoing people. So if there's something that I might like that he might not like or the other way around, we'll have a chat about it and then we'll get to like, uh, we'll get to the core of what we're trying to say. Yeah. And it's also really nice to, uh, when things might not be going, you know, your way in the creative process, I could just call him and be like, oh man, I'm worried about this. Whereas when I'm writing on my own in my dirty ass pajamas, there's no one else <laughs> I could call. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you just talk to yourself. <laughs> I talk, and I do. <laughs> I've actually got a podcast. No, I don't. <laughs> of me talking to myself. <laughs> so one thing, because I, I watched Violin, I've watched it twice now. Nice. And what caught my eye the first time around was yeah. the colours. How yes. like, Even the jumper yes. is very vibrant and you're able to see Peckham in a very new light. Yes. Very refreshing and it shows all of Peckham, not just the good parts, not just the bad parts, all of it. Mm. And I think also what I liked as well, how Yaz and Dom, how they their relationship just kind of folded into each yeah. other almost. Yeah. So why did you decide to write the characters in that way? Yaz and Dom are a version... Well, I think 
most importantly, they're a version of everybody who's involved with the film. Rain has her version of Yaz and Dom. Vivian and Dom, Vivian, <laughs> Vivian and David <laughs> have their version of Yaz and Dom, and Tom and I have ours. And I think I'm definitely more of a Yaz. He's more of a Dom. So what does that mean? So so Yaz for me is kind of like she's a bit kooky. She is gone with the wind she gets lost in thought she's excited by every single thing she's a super optimist all of the things that I like to think I am <laughs> um, <laughs> and Dom's more methodical emotional kind and sweet but also a bit too emotional at times you know and so Tom is uh, in ways like that but then also he has ways of uh Yaz's um, confidence as well. So when we're writing these characters, we have to find ourselves in them and also look at our social friends and be like, oh, she's a bit like my girl. But we never tell them. Okay. You never tell them. But they always say that about writers that. Yeah, don't tell me nothing. My mum won't tell me stuff. She won't. She'll be like, he's going to put it in one of his scripts. I'll put it in one of his scripts. And I will. (laughs) Exactly. That's what happens. Yeah. And I've got, she told me off countless times. I put a whole birth name in a script once and she was like are you well are you okay Uh, is this my child so I had to change that but yeah so when did you first feel like a writer oh man I would say when I realized it was a job before I thought it was just like a thing old white men did with quills I thought you know what I'm saying like they dip it in ink with a scroll and be like blah 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 (laughs) and I just didn't think it was a job but I did a um uh, a workshop at the Lyric Theatre with Bola Agbaje, who is an incredible writer, director, Big Don, and Simon Stevens. And they kind of took me into playwriting and they took me into kind of all forms of writing. And that's when they were like, no, this is a job. Like, you get bread for this. And I was like, oh, sick. So when I first got some coin for it, I was like, okay, I'm going to go get more of this. So that was probably one of my Rasta Mouse episodes or something like that where I went, wait, so I've written this, they paid me for it, and then a team of 100 people have animated it and brought it to life. I'm going to tell people I do this now. So what were you thinking of doing before if you didn't see this as a career Um, beforehand? I was going to be a PE teacher, (laughs) but I'm bad at PE. I just like being outside, so it was literally (laughs) a thing of like, uh, yeah, I like the idea of PE, but to be honest, when I was about 16, 17, I was acting before I was writing it anyway, so I wanted to be an actor, but I was like, if that wasn't to work out, then maybe I'd look at that. But to be completely honest, my social group, we don't believe in things not working out. That's not an option. There's only, like... Every single one of my friends in my social group from when we were 16, we were saying we were going to make Hollywood movies. And no one was like, oh, come on, be realistic. I don't have a realistic Don in my life. Everybody who I talk to is like, if I pull up tomorrow to meet them all and I say I'm dropping a rap album, yes, they'll be low-key concerned. But they will say, yes, good, good, you know, which is the reason why, part of the reason why I believe in everything so much. Do you think being a writer, there's an element of being delusional in that career path? Yes. I'm the most, <laughs> I'm the most delusional <laughs> person you've ever met. Like, I believe in delusion. You have to be delusional because what is realism? If you're out here being realistic about your hopes, your dreams, your scripts, your words, yeah, look, look, that maybe that works for some, but it can't work for me. Like, anytime I write something, I'm like, yep. This is my Oscar. Great. Cool. This, it will be the... Because you have to manifest it, you know. And listen, I fail nine times out of ten. 
a hundred of the scripts I've written, you never see. This is one that you do. So, you know, the fail rate is huge. But if my delusion wasn't huger, then, um, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't get there. And what about working with different people and starting almost in playwriting? Yes. What about that made you feel like, okay, I can actually do this as a career? Was it that you thought you were good or was it the people that you met? I never felt good. Like, Even now? I feel like I'm okay. Like, I feel like what I am good at is ensuring that I don't allow my insecurity to stop me doing what I enjoy. But if you would say, like, am I good? I don't know. That's like, that's not really a, I don't need to really think about that. I just need to think about what I enjoy doing. I guess through playwriting and all that, I just realized the power. I really loved, like, being able to free my mind and like write what was in my mind or those weird things that I might think or I might meet someone cool and be like, you know, I sometimes struggle to communicate. I'm super dyslexic and whatever. So I'll free write in my book. What's free writing? Free writing is basically where you put a pen to paper and you just write. It doesn't matter. You're just writing your daily thoughts. So every day I do that. And um, my free writes are like the inside of my mind because quite often I'm too shook to say what's inside my mind. I'm a bit of a... I avoid conflict like the plague, but I'm starting to lean into it now. So any conflict, I'm like, bring it on. <laughs> right now, in the next, like, in the last six months, I'm like, I want conflict. Okay, I don't want it really, but I want a little bit of it. Yeah. 50% of conflict. And would you say your dyslexia has held you back in any way? Or yeah. Or have, uh, well, have you managed it? It's definitely held me back in, no. No, it hasn't held me back, actually. Fuck that. Has it no. encouraged you? No, I wouldn't say it's encouraged me, but <laughs> I would say at times it's made me doubt. It's made me question sharing my work because, okay. look, I'm 31. You know, my spelling mistakes are crazy. My punctuation it doesn't exist, um, whatever, whatever. And when you're starting out as a writer, people are beating it into you like, this is so important. They're only going to read it once. It's a big fat lie. It's a lie. Everyone's a liar. It doesn't matter. Spelling mistakes is the least important thing of writing. Same with punctuation. Nobody cares. If anything, punctuation is a waste of our goddamn time. Like, actors... <laughs> Ignore it half the time anyway. They really? say they say it how they want to say it. Obviously, you know, That's I'm probably fair. saying some sacrilegious shit right now about punctuation. Maybe the odd comma's cute. But <laughs> in general, like, if you're a dyslexic writer like myself, I wouldn't stress about it. I wouldn't stress about those types of things because um, creating art isn't about that. That's, that's the script editors who will help you do that, you know. So, yeah. And you mentioned earlier about failure and how you almost have a more healthy relationship with failure yeah how have you got to that stage because i've never failed and it's actually been and it's actually stopped me like it's never failing is amazing i fail every week in some form of way and failing makes me know that i'm trying stuff and i'm putting myself out there if you're not failing then you're not putting yourself out there there's no risk you have to fail failing is like you, it's it's better than success sometimes because you see it and it goes wrong and you learn from it and you pivot and you do a next thing. If you're always just winning, listen, which is cute and please, universe, just let me win all the time. <laughs> like, listen, look, failing. FYI. Yeah, FYI. I'm not saying more failure, okay? <laughs> but I'm saying the failings I've had have made me a happier, more productive artist because, uh, you know, it's just, it drives me forward. And has any of your failures encouraged you or made you want to give up? Yeah, no, actually, I can't even entertain that, no. I, 
no, I, I've never thought about giving up, ever. Even when I was so broke, there was my girlfriend was giving me £2.50 to get to Stockwell to link her, and I'm a big man at 23 or something. I've got no pee, but now i got pee. <laughs> but it's like, if I did give up, then... But yeah, we never, even when, like, we were going to Lidl and we were buying that chicken and it was feeding them, like, us for three, four days, that one pack. Giving up was never it. It was like, even though we are busted and whatever, and we, we buy them two bottles of wine for five pounds, this is the most exciting time. Being a creative is the most exciting time. It doesn't matter if you're a creative who has a million pounds a week, obviously that would be cute, but, oh, you're a creative who is really struggling. Creating is that is our joy. Like, even, like, that for me just gets me so excited. Obviously, I'm aware that money does bring a privilege and money does bring comfort and money does bring belief. So I've definitely come from a privilege in what I'm saying. But, you know, I think for anybody listening, like, just find the joy in creativity and just giving up is not an option. Absolutely not. Doesn't exist. Next. So you um, have no plan B? No. No. Zero. Uh, no. <laughs> This is it. There's literally not even like, there was no plan B when I didn't get into uni. There was no plan B. I got the worst A-level results possible to man. My parents were shook. There was no plan B. And I felt cool about no plan B. I was chilling with my, my people. None of us had a plan B. And I think if you've got a plan B, well, it's easy to go to your plan B. Go to your plan B. Your, my plan B would have meant that I wouldn't have had to get two bottles of wine for five pounds. I could have got that nice wine with a nice label and yeah. a cork, you know? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So in terms of your creativity and how you approach your creativity, mm. you're very big on creating your own work. Yes. And not waiting to be validated yes. or be commissioned. Yes. Why are you so big on that? Because... Being an artist is a job that you employ yourself. You can't allow for someone, when someone commissions you, is when you say you're an artist. That's not it. You wake up in the morning, you're an artist. When you're walking down the road and you're just thinking about your next thing you're going to write, your brain is an artist. It's a 24-hour brain. So I, I think it's really important that, yeah, it's lovely being validated. I love when Sky greenlit my show and our movie got made. But if those things didn't happen... I, I created a web series on myself that I funded. I've created comic books by myself that I funded. I put short plays on in theatres. I'm a storyteller. This is my world. I'm going to tell the stories in this world regardless. But obviously, please keep green light on my things. Disclaimer. Disclaimer. I love the, the self-doing things, but also please give me the big ones. But I am an artist. That is my 24-hour job. And that is everybody's 24-hour job. And a pay grade doesn't decide if you are or aren't one. But especially for like people that are up and coming yes. that are trying to break into industry. So mm -hmm. you're author, you're screenwriter, you're playwright. Mm -hmm. How do you overcome those barriers? Because even though we're saying create art, yes. there's obviously YouTube, there's TikTok, but yeah. what can people do to not allow money to be a hindrance? Find community. So when, look, also there's two things here. Money is a hindrance. It is, it's hard, it, it's shit, it's depressing, it's, it ruins creativity in many ways. But the thing that helps is finding community with other artists. So when I was making those web series, when I was making the comic books and whatever, I was finding artists who were in the same position as me, wanting to create, hungry to create, 
people like Grant Taylor and, you know, many other, Teresa, my girlfriend, and all these other people, which were like, we're hungry, we want to make films, we have no money, should we all just, like, use this weekend to make a thing? So if I was a young creative listening, I'd go to the BFI, they've got a young filmmakers group, go to the Lyric Hammersmith, they've got a, a playwriting group. After you do a little workshop there, go to the pub with a few of those people and be like, I'm trying to do this thing, do you have a camera, do you have a sound? And work together to kind of make it for free because in community that can happen it's when money gets involved does it all get a bit mad yeah i agree i guess sometimes you think things are so expensive now it's so expensive so i definitely get what you mean even if you don't have community and you are literally feeling like you're on an island write a monologue and film it on your instagram and do it every week and or you know there was a time where i had a character i had no peas and I realized that, like, there was a way of storytelling via iMessage on my phone. Like, I was sending these text messages back and forth, like, two people. Yeah, yeah, like a nut job, yeah. Oh. And then I would screenshot those messages, and then I'd put them on a blog post. No one read it, but it was just a form of storytelling that I just vomited out. So I felt like, again, like, if you're saying you're an artist and you want to be an artist, you've got to find a way to create art. That's part of the artist's struggle is like dodging all the bullshit in life and finding a way to create in whatever way. Even if you're art, like there's an artist uh, in London who creates little art pieces where bricks have been removed around our city. Like he's just found a little tiny bit of creating art. Art can exist in any form. Yes, we all want mainstream recognition. I want it. Oh, I love it and I'm enjoying it. But just like find a way to tell your story and then it will hopefully, you know. And just speaking on the type of things you do write. Yeah. You write a lot about black joy. Yeah. And about being a black British person. Yes. Another thing I've read that you said is that there's, we have to be very conscious of how we tell those stories. Mm -hmm. Why have you decided to do it in the way that you do it? And why do you think it's important for more of these stories to be told? Um, Especially in you being also a children's author as well. Yeah. Like for me, I want as many black artists to create their work in whatever way they feel and however way they want to tell their story. I choose the way I tell my stories to center joy because right now in my life I'm feeling very joyful and I believe joy spreads more joy and it inspires and that's how I want to live. But you know, five years ago when I made my web series, I wasn't feeling joyful. I was feeling pissed. Loads of shit in the world was pissing me off. And I made a web series about racism and all the shit I'd encountered. And I was angry. Like, so, you know, the current chapters of one's autobiography goes from angry to joyful. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Right now I'm feeling joyful. Maybe because life is, you know, giving me that. And the most important thing is that we all create in whatever way we feel, basically. And who would you like to thank for your success? Oh, my God. My Oscar speech is what you're... <laughs> well, well, let me pull it out. <laughs> I've already written it. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Are you, I sure? haven't. Are you sure? Well, maybe. No. <laughs> no, there's so many people. Like, And I think what I was so lucky, so lucky early on, is that because I was always asking people to like mentor me even at 17 I was like I'd meet someone in the theater I met Riz Ahmed once I was like would you mentor me he was like yeah all right and we had a few mentor meetings and then obviously he's a super Hollywood movie star so he's busy but I was always asking so you know two definitely two amazing people I really really love is Noel Goodwin at the BFI and Yare who was also at the BFI and I shout out those two specifically because 
I believe in being as an artist, being audacious and uh, asking for asking for whatever the hell you want. Like if I I had a dream, right? That when I made this web series, I wanted to screen it in NFT one at the BFI, the biggest cinema. It's four hundred and fifty seater. It's like one of my dream screens, but I had no P, no P. Like I'd run up, I'd run up my credit card. Taxman was on my back. It was peak. Me and the taxman are good now. <laughs> I think it's important to say disclaimer. So we disclaimers today. Yeah. No, no, wow, why are you exposing me? Oh my goodness. Sorry. <laughs> but, but it's like, I'm, you've got me very, I'm just very gassed at the moment, so this no, is good. But So, you know, throughout my career as a young filmmaker, I just hit Noel and I hit Yare and I was like, guys, is there any way you'd let me screen my film and I would always expect them to say no and every single time they said yes and that one they said yes and that 450 seater changed my whole perspective it was like a dream come true and basically one of the lessons I learned is that you just have to ask people will say no a lot of the time but you need one yes Noel said yes to me screening films that we made that were probably dead but it made me believe my, my work could be on the cinema. It made me believe the journey was possible. So definitely those two. Obviously, mum and dad, because I've shot in every single room in their house. There's not a room I haven't shot. And my mum, why are you always putting my house on camera? Why are you, you know, you've got 25 people in my house. But my mum and dad have like been the biggest support. And also, this is where it's important for me to check my privilege is that when I was a struggling artist, I always had a roof over my head. I always had food on the table. So I could I, di I could go, oh, I'm going to take this job for free or whatever. And lots of people don't have that privilege. So, you know, mumsy and dad, girlfriend, Teresa, who's an incredible director, for, again, being like, when I come home crying after failing or I don't believe in myself for 45 minutes or whatever it so is. So specific. No, but you know what I mean? Like, you, I, I have like a moping, we've got like, we've got to keep the moping uh, to a thing but actually tell a lie when my when Bloods got cancelled I'm out for two whole weeks this was recent I was like I was really upset it felt like one of the biggest failings of my life but it wasn't it was a huge success but pain is pain anyway my Oscar speech gone I love there's so many people that um, without them basically just everybody I've always encountered bar a few ops along the way have been like you can do it do it you can do it do it how can I help you so I think just really ask everyone how they can help you and ask for what you want. You just mentioned about Blood's being cancelled mm. and you're upset for about two weeks. Mm. Why do shows get cancelled and how did that make you feel in terms of, you mentioned that you felt like a failure but then you realised it wasn't a failure. So how did you navigate that period of time? Especially um, from it being greenlit and then yeah. being cancelled. I navigated it, A... It was one of the biggest dreams of my life for it happening. Like, me and Samson have created a show. Two black boys have created a show. It's one of the biggest budgets comedies on Sky. It's got some of the biggest comedy actors in the country. We've been nominated for three BAFTAs. It's like, this is a dream. This is my dream come true. Yeah. You know, I've gone from making £10 short films to a multi-million pound TV show already. Uh, working with writers like Paul Doolan, who's the funniest, you know, writer in the country and all these amazing other writers I learned loads along the way working with Rafkar and Seb my producer so my writing completely evolved like completely shifted they taught me how to write sitcom it was like a crash course um, what are the key things to writing sitcom 
I'd say like the jokes. <laughs> you need jokes, loads of them. You need to understand the sitcom structure, which is, basically your characters don't change. They do the same shit every week. Your character's um. like, if Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory suddenly decided that being an arrogant nerd wasn't the way people wanted to respond to him, it'd be, it wouldn't be the same show. Every week, Sheldon is the same person, and that's why you can go for 100 episodes. Uh, things change when it comes to comedy drama. Characters do change and grow. But you want your character to fall into the same traps, do the same sort of weird shit, because that's what we go back and laugh for. But you have to be naturally funny. I feel like you're a funny person, so I feel like the jokes will come easily. Uh, do you have to be a funny person? I don't think you have to be an extrovert. I think you can be an introverted funny person. Some of the best writers in our writers' room uh, might be a quiet person in a in a loud room, but they've got a really funny take on the world. They see the world in a funny way, or sometimes they're a bit angry. And people being angry about really menial shit is funny. Like someone who's like, "Oh, the traffic today ruined my day." Like that's <laughs> hilarious that you're allowing that to happen, and that you zone in on that, and you zone in on that, and that's kind of. That really provides really good uh, sitcom energy. Um, and what about writing for kids? Writing for kids. Is that a niche as well? Is that difficult to do? I don't think it's any more difficult than sitcom. I don't think it's any more um, niche or anything. I think, actually, do you know what? Like, I think it's exactly the same. Kids will tell you when they are bored. Like, adults will tell you when they are bored. And you should never talk down to kids when you're telling them stories. Never, like baby them because remember when you were a kid you wanted that big boy toy that big girl toy do you yeah. know what I mean you never wanted to feel like you're reading something for your age and kids feel like that when they're doing it but you know my, my picture book series and the new books I'm doing again it's like I'm trying to definitely put black children in the center of all my books but most importantly I want them to be fun for everyone and they're energetic and they're full of pace and that's exactly what I do when I'm writing Rylane, when I'm writing Bloods, whatever it is. And this is a bit of a nosy question, but how do writers' rooms work? A is it literally question. a writer's room or do you all do it from Zoom? Like, how do they yeah, work? Yeah, well, generally we're all in one room and there's loads of tea and biscuits and uh, there'll be a sort of producer or a showrunner in the room who kind of leads the discussion for the day or leads the the point, the things we have to achieve today, you know. We basically just throw around ideas, we chop them up, we we talk loads about our personal life. Lots of time you bring lots of your own personal stories to a writer's room. And actually not that much writing gets done in a writer's room. Lots of talking gets done and like trying to push things together and muddle them and yeah, it's actually a really, uh, most of the ones I've been in, they're like a really fun, intimate space where like it's really important that you create it as safe as possible so people share because you want that person to tell you that embarrassing story about the time they pissed the bed when they were nine because that's going to lead you on to the big set piece in episode six. And if you don't create that space, then people won't share that and then it's, that's a, it's awkward. That's, that's a hellscape, yeah. And whose career are you jealous of? Uh, I'm not jealous of anybody's career. Um, I love I love everybody's career. I love watching everyone's career because, like, no, no one can do what I do. No one like I can't do what anybody else can do. Um, so I really find my Twitter, my socials. I'm a neek. I retweet everybody. If I see your just doing your thing, I'm like retweet, retweet. I'm like Oprah with the retweets. I be retweeting anybody and anybody because a spread love. 
That's what it's about. And be like, everybody needs support. And so often, I think so many artists don't feel seen or supported. Or they don't feel invited to places or they don't feel part of community. And I think quite often we use the internet to just say mean shit or moan about shit. Just retweet your brethren show. Do like, retweet this podcast. Follow this podcast. Do all them things. Like, share, pe- share the love. Share the love. There's this new like debate about people saying their friends or families don't support them if mm. they don't share their stuff. Mm. What are your thoughts on on that? Look, I mean, uh, of course, it, as your friends, you should try and share as much stuff as possible. Because as an artist, like, yeah, you might not buy a ticket to my show, but that retweet, when I go on my phone and I see it, it just gives me confidence. It gives me belief. So I think, look, uh, we should all do it more and as much as possible. But also, like, there's family members who aren't on socials. There's family members who feel really socially awkward on, you know, TikTok or whatever it is. So don't see that just because on this fake internet world means that people don't support you. They might support you, but they just might hate that space. So it's both. (laughs) I get you. (laughs) Yeah. So the next section Mm. that we have is all about your writing rituals. Yes. How you write, where you write. Yes. So I guess the first question I would like to ask you is, what is your bad writing habit? Okay, so my bad writing habit is I write a line, check my phone, write a line, (laughs) go on YouTube, scroll for 10 minutes, write a line, go make myself a coffee, write a line, do my laundry, and by six o'clock I've written five lines. (laughs) Uh So like... I can't do one thing at once. I've got, when I'm writing, I've got to have my music on so loud I'm basically deaf. I've got to have snacks on the table. I've basically, I've got, yeah, I'm I'm a hot mess. I'm surprised I actually write anything because if you were to watch me write, (laughs) you're like, he could have done that in an hour, but this is like three days later. But is that because you're trying to like formulate your ideas or is that just procrastination or uh, it's procrastination i'm just like i'm a very distracted person like i'm like i'm always just somewhere else i i find it really hard to do one thing at once i procrastinate like a it's unreal like i'm it's unbelievable so how are you with deadlines <laughs> are you my producer? Have they asked? You, have they told you to ask me this? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Well, do you have a deadline? Like, that's yeah, coming up? I've got a deadline that's gone. <laughs> <laughs> do you like say, "Oh, FYI, it's running late," or do you just not radio silence? Um, I do both. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I find deadlines really hard, but they're really important, and I appreciate them. And I have to be chased, and that's not something I'm proud of. But I do lots of different writing. And I work hard to hit as many of them as possible, but that's not always possible. And also, I have no concept of time. So, you know, if I've got a script, I will think I can write that in one day, but I'm lying to myself. (laughs) I'm I'm a liar. I can't, and I've done it time and time again. So unfortunately, that's one of the things that I think my dyslexia definitely makes difficult because... uh, I can't, I'm not good at managing time. But weirdly, I'm quite pr- prolific with the amount I create. But um, I find it hard. What would you say is your favourite medium of writing that you like to write in? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm sorry, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is because my favourites are the stories I get to tell in whatever medium I get to tell them mm. in. So, like, yeah, I love writing movies. We just wrote a movie. But if that was my favourite, that was what I'd 
have to do all the time. But I love writing movies just as like much as I like writing picture books. I I can't differentiate. Sorry, that's a bad answer. No, I get you. I think also writers are seeing now that their writing can be in other forms, yes. and formats. Yes, and I think there's beauty in that as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I think as a writer, you shouldn't. I mean, look, if you're a writer who says I'm a playwright, I'm a playwright only. Do you? But I think as writers, you should feel that you can write in every medium and any medium. And yes, it will differ from time to time to time. But most importantly, it's the storytelling that matters. And quite often in this industry, people tell you to stay in your lane. And I think that is the most dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like, do not stay in your lane. Drive in other people's lane. Obviously not (laughs) when you're really driving because you will kill people. (laughs) But in this creative energy, I think it's important that you must never stay in your lane. Absolutely not. Go try something. If it goes great, have some more fun. Me getting into picture books. I'm dyslexic. I don't read. (laughs) I find reading so hard. Like, And once I got into the picture book world, now I read. I read loads. Because that world became accessible and now I'm really interested in it. And I've learned that there's books that I can read (laughs) better, but... You know, if I stayed in my lane, I would have never become an author. I would never have got into reading. Like, do you know what I mean? It's corny. Don't ever stay in your lane. Do you write intros first or the ending first? It depends. Every story, like, you know, like, as a writer, I think how stories come to you is almost like just one moment you're just daydreaming. It's just like, what? Someone's just put something in my actual head. What the? Who's done this? Oh, my God. And that me, that can kind of happen in a sense of like, that someone's just dropped the ending and I have to work out how we got there. Or someone might have just dropped a middle and I have to, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, and then whatever point I've just like gone, oh, that's an interesting starting point. I will work through whatever it is but it, it's definitely never like always the beginning always the end I wish it was my my brain would be a maybe a more safe space <laughs> you know it's just a, a hot mess um, in terms of your ideas mm. and what inspires your ideas so as you said someone puts an idea in your yeah. brain how do you know when to entertain it and when to just like throw it away so I'm a big believer of sharing my thoughts early so I don't like work an idea up I use my friends a lot, and they probably are sick of this, but I'll be in a pub and be like, I just thought the other day about like, these zombies, did, 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 did. And if their eyes light up, I'll be like, ooh, maybe there's something there. And I'll run home, and uh, I work with an illustrator called Spike Zephaniah, who's sensational. And I'll commission him to make me a poster, a visual poster. And then I'll take that visual poster of my idea to producers. And quite often, I've sold a movie, a TV show off these posters, you know, like... They really inspire. I'll give Spike the brief and Spike will use his magic because quite often I struggle with my words. So visuals really help. I'm a visual person. So I know you have to normally Mm. submit a treatment Mm. for when you're going to pitch shows and stuff. So how does the poster work in replacement of that? Or do you do it together? So the poster quite often will get them to commission me for the treatment. So it'll be like part of the process. So it'll be like, instead of me being on a Zoom, being like, I've got this idea about this donkey who has wings and I don't have that idea. But instead of that, um, I will show them a poster of a donkey with wings and they can go, oh, that's what you're talking about. So the poster will look like a movie poster that you see in the cinema. Or or it'll look like a comic book that you see in the shop. And sometimes that hits for them and sometimes it doesn't. But quite often, if people can see what I'm trying to talk about, it's just better if I could just give it to you and then I'll go away and do the hard work after that bit. 
Where did that idea come from? I've actually never heard of that before. Um, the idea came from me struggling in pictures, me struggling to talk. I find it hard to sometimes. Um, to a big room of people, I'll get nervous and I'll be jumping around and I'll be sweating and shit. And I don't want to be doing that. So um, it was it's, it was a device that I used to make me feel better. But it came from a commission spike to make some comic books when I was self-publishing a comic book. And his posters, are so, his, his front cover of the comic book are so striking and so amazing. And he really just, it's like he, he's got like a, a USB into my brain and he just makes it so much better. Um, so after I made that comic book, I realized I could use that as a device to sell any medium of shows or books or whatever I do. Mm, I love that. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is your favorite piece of writing if you had to choose? Okay, I'm, I'm going to say... Rye Lane. Even though Rye Lane is a co-write with Tom and it is our 50-50 baby and actually it's probably our 50-50 or however many 50s are in a 100 with Rain as well because it's our baby. The premiere was last night. It was one of those things where whilst my contribution is shared with everybody, like when me and Tom sat in the Picturehouse Central and we were writing the first draft, What I said was, I wanted to make a movie about black joy and love and show the London I live in. And last night, I saw that we achieved that. And quite often, when I'm creating, I I might set out, quite often before I start writing, I write my mission statement for the project. I write 10 points. I go, I want this project to inspire this. I want this project to be this. I want this project to be whatever. And quite often we'll get to the end of the project. And I'm like, boy, I don't know what happened to that project. Boy. <laughs> that project went left. <laughs> I'll be like, <laughs> With Rylane, I don't think the project went left. I think that project, it was hard to do. It was amazing. And like I said, my actual input is like, it's collective, it's shared. It can't, it's not solely from me, but I just felt immensely proud. Did you get any comments or remarks that have really made you that kind of enforced that feeling yeah I mean we've we've been really lucky we premiered the movie in America and Sundance Festival and you know I was definitely nervous about that because it's so London isn't it so I was like Americans gonna get this like oh whatever whatever but they did they were like euphoric about it and I was like and remember, American diversity in rom-coms is way ahead of us and yeah. over here. Like, yes, we have had black British rom-coms, but there's not as many. Yeah? It's very, very, Yeah, very, it's rare. Very. Like, there's a few there that are legendary, like Boxing Day, like Bollers uh, Gone Too Far. It's not necessarily a rom Well, maybe it is a rom-com. But, you know, these, you know, black British movies exist, so it's lovely to kind of add to that. But, yeah, the comments and the reviews are a couple uh, but mm. mainly are, are, um, are joyous and lovely so yeah it did kind of cement it but actually I the moment I had in the cinema when I had tears in my eyes last night oh, no, and really? I looked at my girlfriend and she was crying that was one of those moments where I was like oh goodness like, I've never felt like that before oh my god I'm feeling it now oh but what brought those tears I think it was just that and I've seen the movie a hundred times so it's not like I didn't know what's going to happen. Like, I've seen that. We, you know, we wrote it, but it felt like we achieved what we set out to do. And it's so hard to always achieve what we set out to do. I had it another time, similar time I had it was with Look Up when Look Up came out. And we saw, like, when we get sent these pictures of all these black kids on World Book Day, like, I, I've seen them. Like, one of the greatest things 
it, wow, what an honor, what a gift that I get that every March or whatever, Dapo and I get sent these um, amazing things. So it's like, anyway, you, you know, yesterday, I think it was just that moment where I was like, oh, like the, the times where you've been set back, you've been mugged off, this has happened, this has happened, but here right now, yeah <laughs> yeah it's like made it all worth it it made it all worth it and I know already the next movies I'm doing there's setbacks there's whatever but now I know what the end result is and I know when the right people collaborate together you can achieve what you set out to at the initial input yeah what would you say are your favourite writing exercises okay free writing is everything it's actually nothing to do with storytelling really it's about kind of channeling your brain as an artist so it's about like freeing all the bullshit that you wake up with your doubts and writing it down make your free write ugly god forbid i die and someone reads these free writes god forbid Ooh. whoa the tea the <laughs> oh my goodness it'll be disgusting i'll be uh, uh, you know, i've already said to my girlfriend you're gonna burn them right she was like oh a bonfire <laughs> a bonfire of my free rights. Absolute bonfire. Just because it's the pure, it's a place where I, I uh, am completely explicit about my fears, about my wants, about everything. So I really, that's for me, my daily practice. Uh, my other writing exercises, one I stole uh, from the writer Simon Stevens, which I do quite often, which is 51 things about a character. So I write 51 random things about every character as I start the project. And that's so that when I'm writing and I'm trying to find a funny dialogue, I've got these 51 things in my armory. I like, And the 51 things might be like, my man loves organic spaghetti bolognese from Bill's. So specific. Really specific. So when I'm writing the dialogue... I know he likes something from Bill, so I know he's this type of person. So that's 51 things. Something I'm trying to do more, which I'm learning really helps, is reading scripts. Everybody's scripts. And I find reading hard, and it takes me ages. And sometimes I get bored, and I'll be skipping shit. My own scripts as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, so yeah, that helps. Yeah, those three. What would you say is the best time for you to write? Night or day? Because it's like my full-time job. I don't have the privilege of being like, oh, I'm going to write at 4 a.m. at night because my girlfriend would be like, excuse me, what, like, what is your life? like?" You, so I treat it like a job job. If I'm on deadline, we're up at 6 a.m. We're writing until 11 p.m. Wow. But that's because my procrastination is so heavy. Like a normal person would be able to wake up at 9 till 5 and probably get it done. I know I'm going to be out here just like, dancing in the middle of the day in my house <laughs> when the producer's email's been like, where is it? I know I'm listening to Burner Boy and, <laughs> and I'm sweating because I know i got to do it. So I have to build in procrastination time because okay. I'm a hot mess. So the last section yeah. is called Advice You Give, which yes. is where I want to get all your gems. Yes. The advice you'll give to your younger self to also other up-and-coming writers as well. Yes. So I guess, what is the key thing that you want people to take away from our conversation i want to, uh, people to take away to be audacious with their wants for their career you said you wanted to get that tattooed on you oh uh, yeah i did i did but i'm not tattooed. no no okay. uh, um, this is uh, one of my problems is that i won't i like the idea of it but then i won't do it okay, okay, okay. so yeah but maybe maybe one day <laughs> thank you for calling me out on it <laughs> so yeah but audacity is a word i think about for every project for every deal for everything, 
And I think all writers should be audacious. I'll tell a story of my best friend. We were both hustling early doors and we didn't have representation at this point, but we thought we were just like lit <laughs> because we're just gassed youths. And <laughs> um, we had no connects, but we were just like, we were just in the house that day writing. He was like, I, wa I want the head of Warner Brothers to read this. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah. I want the head of, I'm going to find out who the head of Warner Brothers is. He guessed his email, the head of Warner Brothers. A email. Skill. skill. Guess emails. Major. He emailed the head of Warner Brothers. Ten minutes later, the head of Warner Brothers emailed him back and was like, I never get emails like this. I never get emails uh -huh. like this. I'd really love you to meet you and take you for a coffee and take you around the studio. I've had that as well. That's how I got my Rasta Mouse commission. I um, guessed the producer of Rasta Mouse's email. He invited me in. He bought my TV show idea and he... Uh, commissioned me to write two episodes of Rasta Mouse. That all came from me being audacious. And I'm still audacious now. I recently wanted an American agent. No American agents were hollering me. So I spoke to Damien, the producer, and he introduced me to an American agent. And now I've got a new American agent. But my point is, is that I had to decide that I wanted to try something. And I could have got rejected immediately by 100 American agents. So... I'll do it again another time. Yeah. So yeah, being audacious is my number one, just my fave fave. Two, don't be shy of sharing how great you are. That is so important. I think for so long, I was worried because I was dyslexic. I was worried about people not liking it. I was worried of being exposed, of not being good enough. And then I don't know what clicked. And I'm the complete opposite. Now I share everything. I share too early. People will be like, just hold it. Just, we don't even want to see it yet. Stop. Like now I'm like, because basically as a writer, you learn when you share. Because our job of storytelling is to affect people. If you never share your stories, you're never going to learn how to make them better. So when I'm pitching my stories to people, I pitch them in the pub. If I meet someone's mum, I do it slide so they don't know I'm doing it. Yeah. But I'm like, oh, I'm just doing this thing. I'm the story. And they're like, and if they're just like slumped. I'm like, okay, maybe not for that. <laughs> so I'm saying like, yeah. you basically share your stories. Go on BBC Writers Rooms. There's always new playwriting things. I was writing 15-minute plays for free for years, and they'd be done by these amazing group of generous actors who would donate their time. And then there'll be like 12 people in the audience. I'll be watching them 12 people being like, what do they think the of my story? Yeah. So sharing work's dead important. And being positive, it's really easy to feel like you're not doing good enough. It's really easy to feel like you're not rolling through all this and... Like I use Bloods as an example, like Bloods was hard. It wasn't easy. It wasn't natural to me. I wasn't some like, like one of those script writers, starlets who were like, wrote his first script and it was dreamy. Absolutely not. It was hellfire. But the thing that got me through was my innate positivity of like, well, yeah, I'm not giving up. Like, I'm not going to give up. And I think for the team I was working with, Rough Cut, they were like, well, the good thing about him is, I'm putting words in their mouth here, they might be like, there's not, there's, what's he on about? It was tough. But I think maybe one of them potentially might have said to me drunk at a party was, the good thing about you is, is that you're positive. So that even when we give you 100 pages of notes on your 30-page script, you will work really hard to get there. And you believe that you will. I'll be positive for it. So I think seeing the light when you feel like you want to give up is really important. Uh... Pay your taxes. <laughs> Have you had like a bad experience with taxes? I think I, when I was younger, um, I don't come from a family of performers. So 
when I first, this was when I was an actor and I was like 18. I was just immature and I didn't understand. I didn't get taught about taxes in school. So when I got paid, I was like, what? <laughs> this is every penny of this is mine. Wrong. It's not. It's not yours. So I did get myself in trouble. But actually, if I'm honest, all the money I spent, the year I got myself in trouble is I made reality, my web series. So I took all the money I made from this TV show. I spent a lot of it on myself, I can't lie. But a, a big chunk of it I put on reality. But the way I was managing my business, my self-employed business, wasn't correct. So I messed myself up. Me and my girlfriend had to move out of the flat. It was peak as hell. I was like, wow, this is like what my version of like, you know, peak looks like. And I moved back to my mom and dad's house. I liked 25 or whatever and me and the tax man we're good now boy we are good <laughs> he gets his money on time <laughs> and some yeah like I've got an accountant now like me and the tax man we, we have weekly chats we go out for dinner like we like wow. each other no we don't of course <laughs> okay. not I've never met this tax man uh, ever but we're good like I had to learn about the business and appreciate that obviously I want to pay my tax this is like I want to be you know part of this society so actually paying your tax is an honor it's something that you should be proud of and now and for the last you know 10 years 20 years how many years just in case um I am so yeah pay your taxes I absolutely loved that episode with Nathan. I loved so much. I didn't even know he was going to be that funny. And I think what I really admire is, despite being dyslexic and neurodiverse, he's managed to become a hugely successful writer. He's received many no's. He's knocked on many doors that haven't been open for him, but he just stuck to his plan A. He's been very delusional, as you've heard him say. And I think that's something we can all take away from this conversation. Sticking to our plan A, not looking at our plan B, plan C, and our plan D. Because I guess sometimes those things can distract us and derail us from our goals and uh, the direction we want to go in um, and I would say for writers who are trying to figure out where they want to be or what they want to do just don't lose heart just keep going keep knocking on those doors and reaching out to people don't be shy and as Nathan said work out those emails which is a very good trick his new film Rye Lane is out now so go and watch it it's a beautiful rom-com that's innovative vibrant and colourful and I really enjoyed it as well I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. We're on TikTok, Instagram and Twitter at Black Pros Pod. And yeah, I'll see you next time. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.